Welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm Dawn Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. We have a fun, filled, packed show today. Dr. Bethany Grace Howe of Oregon is our guest. But first, let's get to the news. What did you report this weekend, Carly, that was a big deal up here in Boston? It was probably the most different pickup team you've ever seen in any sport. You got a group of 16 hockey players together from across North America and say, let's get together as a team, go to one of the premier hockey towns of North America, and let's have our inaugural game as a unit. Oh, by the way, did we mention that every member of this team is transgender. Woo! Team trans is what they're called. And it was it was a collaboration of just a couple of players got together with Boston Pride Hockey, a large LBGTQ hockey, hockey program and league up in Boston. And they said, hey, we want to get a team together and have an all-trans locker room. And Boston Pride Hockey said, we're with it. They got the team together. They got 16 players from the United States and Canada. They played a BPH select squad for two games last weekend. And yes, Team Trans lost both games. The Saturday game was a nip and tuck one. Um, the BPH Select scored a goal with two minutes left to get a 4-3 win. The next game, it was 8-3. to The Selects jumped on early and just stayed on their neck most of the game. But the final score is secondary. The primary thing is this team with two professional players on it. Harrison Brown was on it. Jessica Platt was on it. They got together and they played. And as someone who's on an affirming and welcoming type of team in, in a different sport, in a league concept similar to that, that's a big deal. Now, wait a minute. You said that they lost, but trans athletes always win. <laughs> well, it depends on which trans athlete you talk about. Remember, that narrative, they only talk about trans women. Trans men don't play sport, even though this team, <laughs> even though this hockey team was majority trans masculine. But but you know we erase trans men from from yeah. the whole sporting conversation. You you know that right? Oh, of course. And and like I said, trans women always defeat everyone because they always win, which of course is nonsense. Trans athletes lose just like everybody else loses, and trans men compete with men. And you know the latest um, hate that I've been getting on uh, Twitter, partly directed at my you know previous career at my late wife uh, at, at the fact that there are no trans men champions. I mean, it's just, it's so pitiful it, and it's a full-time job dealing with all the hate online. Like why do we matter to these people so much? Why can't they just live and let live? And Twitter doesn't do enough. I'm agreeing with that. Even though Twitter today gave the, you know, the obligatory corporate is trans awareness week. Let's come together message. Here's what gets me about what you're talking about. Cause I have to get this off my chest. There are people who say that tripe about there are no trans male champions and there's no trans men in sports. There are no successful trans men in sports. And they do it on Chris Mosier's Twitter page. What kind of ignorance is that? <laughs> I get to talk to Chris later today. Chris and I are going to do an interview. He's got a good shot at being an Olympian in race walking. Yeah, I went to the Olympic trials, went to the USATF race walk, um, race walk national championships and finished very high in the 50 kilometer walk. So who knows? Even who knows that now that would really make the hater. That would really make the transphobes have smoke pouring out of their ears <laughs> to see that the first American Trans athlete to, to qualify for an Olympic Games is a trans man. It completely drops a big bomb on their entire narrative. Speaking of bombs, Hollywood Reporter uh, shares the news that, unfortunately, South Park has weighed in on transgender athletes, mocking us and turning us into fodder for their animated humor. I, I've never watched a full episode of, I forgot the name of the show, <laughs> South Park. I will, I will admit, I fired up my on-demand and, and caught this South Park ep and, 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 and skimmed this South Park episode. I, I will admit to it. You told me about this maybe five minutes ago. I had to fire up the TV, fire up the on-demand, and see this for real. I'm like, really? But this show is exactly why I've never watched South Park. It's just not my, I mean... 
it's not, it's just not my type of hype. Now I understand that people like it. You know, we're, you know, we have a first amendment. We got a free, we have a free country, free media, et cetera, et cetera. People are like what they're going to like, but this is, I just watching maybe a one minute snippet of this made me said, really guys, to me, it shows again, a real lack of creativity a lack of storytelling, playing to the lowest common denominator, which unfortunately at times popular media does. And it doesn't make it right, but hey, that's kind of where we are. But that also shows why we need more people like Angelica Ross and Jen Richards and and Scott Turner Slowfield out there making content for us, by us, telling our stories. That just shows more is that the only way you're going to beat bad content is with better content. And, you know, that makes me think that we should introduce our guest. Let's set our coordinates for Portland, Oregon. Dr. Bethany Grace Howe, welcome to the Transporter Room. Good morning. Actually, I'm a little further south down in Eugene. Um, Eugene, but it's, it's Oregon. All, you know, it's all Oregon. As somebody once said to me, it's, a, uh, it's one of those ocean states. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to confess it's one of the few states I have not visited. I do look forward to visiting it's, Oregon at some future date. It's a, it's a wonderful place, actually. It's uh, not exactly where I thought I'd end up living out my life, but uh, I've been to a lot worse places, so you know what? I've come to love it. Well, there's a good setup. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Oregon and ended up being a Ph.D. Uh, student and graduate and also a researcher into the transgender experience? About 15 years ago, I moved to the coast of Oregon to be a, a journalist for a small town paper. And I had a great job. And so naturally we got bought by a larger company that destroyed my great job. And uh, it was like, okay, I'm making 12 bucks an hour for a job that I don't like. And so I uh, went back to teaching high school. And so I'm, I'm one of the few people in American history to go into teaching public school for the money. Um, you won't find too many people that can make that statement, honestly. Um, and then I did that for a decade and loved it, loved every minute of it. But I also kind of was like, okay, I'm going to do the same thing every year on repeat for 20 years. And, and I know teaching really isn't that way, but that's how my mind was seeing it. And so I decided I want to get a PhD and, um, uh, just, I don't know. Something had been telling me for a long time that's what I needed to do, and I think I finally listened. And so I went off to the University of Oregon here in Eugene and um, did that for four years. I was on a four-year fellowship, and um, I came to study media literacy, which is just kind of looking at how the increasing role of media impacts uh, learning and how it can facilitate learning. But in maybe one of the, the dumber moves that anyone's ever made, I decided uh, one one quarter of the first term into my four-year fellowship, the gender transition, which everybody will tell you is probably not the best idea. <laughs> um, oh, but, you think your life yeah, is better I, or worse because you transitioned? Wait a minute. Well, you know, my, my, one of my, on the very first day of class, one of my professors who I, I grew to love said, I will tell you right now, as you start a PhD, do not engage in a major life change. <laughs> and so I came to her in uh, came to her in the in in, in December, and I said I'm going to gender transition, get divorced, and my daughter's moving out of my home. And she said, "Were you not listening?" And I said, "No, you said don't undergo a major life change." I said, "I did three. I said that's different." <laughs> and she and she kind of cocked her head and she said, "She said, yeah." She said, "Supposedly y'all are smart," and I was like, "Eh." Um, and so I, I stayed kind of on a media literacy track, but my, um, let's just say my personal interests kept pulling me back to understanding uh, transgender identity better. I called it my research hobby. And finally, about two and a half years into my program, I realized that it wasn't a hobby. It was what I wanted to study. Um, and I got to be honest, if you're ever going to gender transition, I highly recommend, aside from the complete misery associated with it, um, I highly recommend doing it while you're working in a PhD program, because essentially what I got was four years of paid intellectual navel-gazing. Um, and so 
you know, I jokingly tell people, hey, cool. I got to, uh, I got to study myself. And, um, and, and it led to my research. And my research, um, I was lying in bed one morning, uh, probably about 3 a.m. I couldn't sleep. My brain was tossing and turning as it often does. And um, I, uh, and it occurred to me that, that transgender people um, and I don't think they're completely unique in this because there's all kinds of items of intersectionality that apply. But in terms of like when you look at LGBT people, when you look at people who assert their gender diverse identities, their, their sexual orient, their diverse sexual orientations, and a lot of other things, um, transgender people not only have to prove their fight for their equality, we have to fight for our existence. Um, the you know the crude analogy I give is that the Klan doesn't like Jewish people, and I'm putting doesn't like in quotes, but they do acknowledge Jewish people exist. Um, transgender people were not even merited existence. Um, we are predators in the bathroom. We are a mental illness. We are a phase. We're a, a variety of things, but we're not who we know ourselves to be. And I mean. You can look at that and, and, and see it manifest itself in the Trump administration's approach to health care. Um, you can see it in how some states approach who's allowed to adopt children. You can look at it in the, I think it's in the Kansas GOP platform. It says they will do nothing to acknowledge or encourage people in the belief that transgender people exist. I mean, it's almost word for word. And so that, that became the subject of my research. And um, I... I was fortunate enough to receive a grant from the Caitlyn Jenner Foundation, and that allowed me to fly all over the country. I surveyed hundreds of transgender people and interviewed uh, 66 of them, literally from coast to coast. And um, and that was my dissertation and hopefully an upcoming book. So that's me. Um, and uh, and I do stand-up comedy on the side. It's a wonderful way to relieve stress. <laughs> And tell us a little bit about, um, I know you're not an athlete, but I saw your posts oh. about the Oregon game, and I know Carly wants to talk to you about that. Oh, well, one of my best friends here in Eugene has uh, tickets, season tickets, to the women's basketball team. And so I, I've been going for a couple of years. I, I, I don't consider myself a bandwagon fan. I mean, aside from being in the school for four years, um, I just, I've always liked women's basketball. Um, when I was a high school teacher, 20 years ago, there was no mascot for the basketball team. So I went to all the games. And so I watched, I've watched hundreds of women's basketball games in my life. And so the fact that I'm at a school that has now the top ranked team in the country. And so, yeah, the U S women's team came through and we won, um, for the first time since 1999, uh, a collegiate basketball team beat the women's USA national team. And I, I've, I've never been in an atmosphere like that one. Um, I don't know what the capacity of our basketball arena is, but there were more than 11,500 people there and every one of them standing, screaming. It, it was, it was unreal. <laughs> Here's a little bit of trivia for everybody. I attended the last time a U.S. Really? team lost to a college team. It was in Knoxville, Tennessee, November, 1999. Excellent game. A little freshman, this little freshman steps up at the buzzer and wins with a buzzer beater. I read about Went that. Yeah, that and was... wins it with a buzzer beater. I was there. And it was wow. awesome to see Carol Lawson hit that shot. I mean, this, and well, that's just, I mean, literally her first game in a Tennessee uniform. And she goes oh, really? out and beats the best team in the world. Well, and that was, you know, that was Pat, as you obviously know, that was Pat Summit's Vols. And, you know, one of the things I vaguely remember was when they used to talk about Pat Summit's teams, you know, they'd call them the Lady Vols. And as the years went on, I noticed people didn't need to say the lady anymore. I mean, Pat Summit and the women's basketball team at Tennessee were, you know, they're kind of what UConn is now. Um, and I remember watching some of those games and, uh, so yeah, it's kind of exciting to get to get to be this close. There is a part of me that if they get to the final four, I'm trying to figure out how I could possibly get to New Orleans. I don't know if I can pull that off or not. 
Well, I'll tell you, given given what Oregon's gone through as a program, um, from the Jody Runge era through yeah. all the through through the fights over Title IX, then to what Kelly Graves has done at Oregon the last three years, I mean, Oregon is an odds-on favorite. And also, it's good not only for women's basketball, it's good for women's basketball out West. When you thought about women's basketball in the Pacific, you thought about it Stanford and Stanford. Yeah. Now it's <laughs> the Pac-12 has that fight again. The Pac-12 finally well, has a real rival in women's basketball. And it's going to be a hot rivalry. And it's going to be great to see. And I'll tell you, with that front line and with Anescu, Anescu just scoring points in buckets, Oregon could Oregon right now is the odds on favorite. They're the they're the odds on favorite. They're going to be very tough to beat. Now, going back to you, just in general, getting more of your story. I mean, one thing that all three of us have in common pretty much is that, you know, we came we came to our truths later in life. But we're now in a time when there is a greater level of safety where people can come to their truths a lot earlier in life. I mean, in your mind, do you see a division between older and younger transitioners? And if so, how does it manifest itself? I, I definitely see a difference. What I think is interesting to me is, you know, I'll, I think sometimes you'll hear people articulate that they wish they, you know, kind of in that way one wishes, they wish they were part of a different, another gen, the other generation, because it probably, it, you know, it was easier. And I think what, what I've come to recognize is, is not that one, you know, generation has it easier than another. I think the challenges are different. And, and the best example I can give you of that is I was in, um, I was in Dallas, Texas, and I interviewed, um, I interviewed some teenagers and I interviewed some folks that, you know, we would call senior citizens and, you know, the, the senior citizens articulated that, you know, God, how they would love to have grown up in a time when the kids had the choices that kids have now to embrace their true, their, their true lives. And, and I think, I think overall that's very true, but it was interesting. I was talking to a 14 year old who absolutely knows they know they are transgender. And what is the most difficult thing for them is they live with a family that will not let them gender transition, will not let them take hormones, will not let them do anything. And so as the tragic narrative so often goes, is they're watching their body turn into something that they, they know they're not. And, and what they articulated to me was, you know, I, I know having these choices is wonderful. But what is so hard for me is, is watching my friends who are being allowed to take hormone blockers and who are being allowed to, to embrace their lives. And I'm not. And I almost wish I didn't know that that other world existed. I almost wish that I lived in a world where I just thought this was just me and I would learn to live with it. And, and it was so hard for them to know that what they wanted was literally to depersonalize. It was literally sitting in the desk next to them in class and they couldn't touch it. And it was just devastating for them. And so I, I don't, I don't by any means think that, you know, a, a, a world of greater openness is not better, but I do think it places some burdens on, maybe people that we don't understand. And I'd never thought of it that way until I talked, talked to this, this person. And so that's what I would say. I mean, I do think it's better, but I do think there are burdens that this increasingly open and accepting society is placing on this generation that maybe those of us who are older don't completely understand. I will say, though, that my daughter, who identifies as queer, has friends who are trans and non-binary. And it's so much more accepted. I mean, those kids oh, yeah. in my high school would have been beaten and um, yeah. and shamed and, and, and possibly had to change schools. Um, I'd like to know a little bit more about the research you did and about the famous person who funded it. <laughs> yeah. Back in the spring of 2018, I had been working on my, my research for about a year. And what, 
what I did, and not to get too deep into the academic weeds, but what I was proposing was uh, was theory building. I was proposing kind of a new construct, a new way of looking at transgender identity stress. And uh, and what I came up with was something I called TIDE or transgender identity defense related emotions and transgender identity defense stress. And that is just the idea that the constant having to defend your existence and your identity via other people's microaggressions um, wears you down, um, impacts your mental health. And so it was a very different way. And it's interesting to transgender people you talk to, it's like, well, duh. But in terms of the academic literature, there was nothing out there. And so I was essentially starting from scratch. And so it took me a good year before I had um, anything that was even close to being ready to go. And by go, I mean like do a research study, do anything. And so I was in the midst of that. And and it's about the same time, kind of a parallel course. I had met Caitlyn Jenner um, over the phone, but through a, through a mutual friend. And we just kind of struck up a friendship, um, you know, talking on the phone occasionally. And it was interesting. Um, our conversations were mainly about being older parents and transitioning. You know, I'm talking about my daughter coloring within the lines and Caitlin's talking about her kids and, you know, doing what they do. And, and they're, uh, you know, her kids are a little bit more famous than my daughter, although my daughter's working on it. As my research moved along, I started sending my research to her foundation just saying, look, there's something exciting here, and I would love y'all to know about it, and I would love y'all to help me get the word out. Because in academic literature, it can take it takes 17 years from the time an idea is published until it gets any traction in the public sphere in terms of becoming actionable. And transgender people don't have 17 years. And so I just, I was like, okay. And so one day, foundation contacted me and just said, look, we think we'd like to talk. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Um, and I didn't really know what that meant. And my friend was, well, you're going to ask for money, right? And I was like, no, I'm not asking for money. And they're like, well, what are you, an idiot? And so I did. I presented my research and I said, I'd like to go and do a dissertation and, and I'd like to travel and I'd like to, to, to interview people because I can, do a, I can do a survey. A survey tells you what, it doesn't tell you why. And I wanted to know why people had given me the answers they did. And so I put together a proposal. It was to travel to five U.S. cities, spend approximately um, a week to two weeks in each, depending on the size of the city, and interview people that while I was there. And so I made the pre presentation to the foundation. And then several weeks later, Caitlyn Jenner and her publicist, Alan, came to my campus to do a presentation uh, to our advertising and media programs, just about media and building a messaging campaign. And so uh, I was asked to host that because I was, you know, informed about media, friends with them, yada, yada, yada. And at the end of that, they gave me a nice big check and said, go, go do your research, find the answers. And so that's what I did. And uh, the foundation and I, Kayla and I are still in touch occasionally. Um, you know, at the moment, the grant has run its course. I've done my dissertation and now it's academia. A lot of it is you do your research and then you do a lot of publishing. And so the publishing isn't near as exciting. You sit at a computer. And so we'll stay in touch. And, uh, you know, and everything I publish has got her name on it. Like we just recently had an academic paper published. It's been very well received. Um, and it says right on there, Bethany Grace Howe, uh, researcher, Caitlin Jenner Foundation. And so, you know, it was a friendship that became a lot more than that, obviously. You know, I'm very grateful to her, and I always will be. Uh, she and Sophia Hutchins, who runs the foundation, they just have backed me in every way somebody you could back somebody. Everything I learned, none of it would have been possible without them. You know, my committee, I was like, I'm going to go out and interview dozens of people. And they honestly thought if I came back with 20, that I'd be lucky. And I came back with 66. Couldn't have done that without her help. One of the things that I ran across was the article that you wrote for HuffPost, one Caitlin. And that was during the time yeah. when, when, when Caitlin kind of had the bullseye on her back a little bit. There was the, yeah. there was the, there was yeah. the situation at the BMAs between her and Ashley Marie Preston that had come down, that had come down so and so forth. And Caitlin was, you know, she was, she took a little, 
she was taking a little bit of flack in the community. In the course of not only doing that article, but also doing this research and working and also working along with her foundation, what led you to the stance that you took? What did you learn about Caitlin? And in some ways in your mind, what does the backlash on Caitlin in some ways says about our greater community, if it says anything at all? What I learned about Caitlin was, I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I hang out with celebrities because I don't, but I used to work for Disney on Ice. And um, we would travel all over the country. And, you know, celebrities, just like everybody else, like to bring their kids to ice shows. And so, you know, you have this opportunity to press the flesh with a lot of people. And one of the things I always kind of noticed was I was always interested in if, if people's comportment was the same when the cameras were on as when they weren't. And there were some A-listers and B-listers that we ran up against who you know, when the cameras were flashing and they were doing their meet and greet with Mickey and Minnie, they were very smiley and happy people. And as soon as those cameras were off, it was all of a sudden like, okay, I got to go and I don't have time for you. Um, there were other people that it didn't matter. Um, and, you know, just like Harry Hatcher. And I mean, I, I walked into the, I walked into the bathroom on Connie Selica and she was really nice. <laughs> she just was like, like, I'm sorry. And she's like, yeah, me too, but it's cool. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and one of the things I noticed about spending time with Caitlin was, was that she just was a very genuine person. And, and what I can tell you is like one morning we were at breakfast and uh, we were in Eugene and I made an attempt to kind of get at the table in the corner because I knew I was like, okay, this can be, this can become insane. And yet, you know, obviously people knew we were there. And, you know, one person after another would just come up and want to talk to her and, you know, shake her hand and get a selfie. And she was genuinely nice to everybody. And, and so, so there's that. Um, and I can also tell you that when she and I would sit down and discuss my research and where we wanted that to go is she, we were always talking about studies about people of color and she was always interested in how religion can play an affirming role in the lives of people and 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 just different different things i don't think we ever had a conversation about her um, it was always about what could we do next in terms of research where could we put our money next and so i don't want to make it seem like we're great friends i don't want to make it seem like we're buddy buddy or anything of that nature but i i I can just tell you that in the in the time that I would spend with her person to person, when the cameras were off, when nobody was watching, when it was just us talking, she was always the same person and she was always interested in the same things. And so that meant a lot to me. And it still does. In terms of her role in the community, you know, I I won't lie and say from a I mean, you know, again, I was a it was I was a teacher and a scholar inside a school of journalism and communication for four years. And I've been a practitioner in the business one way or the other for 20. I won't lie that from a PR standpoint, I think she made some, some missteps. I think there are things that she wouldn't do again. What I, what I push back on a little is the idea that, that all of us have to be the same way, that all of us have to navigate our journey the same way. And I do know that I, I Let's put it this way. I do think that when you have an elevated level of celebrity, you have a greater responsibility. You know, it's, it's whether it's whether it's Spider-Man or the Bible with great power comes great responsibility. Um, and. But but one of the things that that drew Caitlin and I together initially was when I came out, I did some things that some people thought were questionable. People question my choices in terms of, okay, are you doing that because you genuinely feel that way? Or are you doing that way because you want the attention, because you want, you know, and, and what I told people and I've told people over and over again is coming out was the most terrifying thing I ever did in my life. I came out in a liberal school in a liberal university in a liberal city in a liberal state, and I was scared witless. And so I did what I had to do to feel safe about coming out. And I didn't hurt other people, but nobody gets to question why I made the choices I did. I made the choices I did to survive. And I guess I look at what, what happened to Caitlin before she came out, you know, the Photoshop magazine covers and the freak show headlines. And she, she did what she needed to do 
to come out. She took advantage of the tools at her disposal. That sound means hailing frequencies are open. We're going to take a little bit of a break right here. You're listening to The Transporter Room. And we're back with The Transporter Room. Dr. Bethany Grace Howe is our guest. Bethany, I'd like to just probe a little bit deeper if it's okay. Sure. What, what, what was it that scared you? Because you know my story. My transition yeah. was as bumpy and as horrible as it could possibly have been. Started off great, and then the headlines and the reporters and the tabloids and the, just this, the yeah. nonsense and the mental health crisis and everything else, getting fired, losing my career. I mean, it is a struggle just to do it. And when it goes smooth, <laughs> it's hard enough. So what was it that scared you so much? The unknown. I just simply, I, to my knowledge, nobody had openly transitioned or admitted their transgender status inside of my school's academic program in terms of the fellowship I was on. So was I going to lose my fellowship? Um, I was getting divorced. So was I going to lose my daughter? Um, my, I wasn't worried about losing my friends. Um, I didn't have that to worry about, but I, uh, you know, it, you, you mentioned that the things that sort of provide you economic security, the things that provide you emotional security, um, I was scared to death. I was going to lose my fellowship and I was going to lose my daughter. Um, and both of those turned out to be completely unfounded. And, and I think some people would almost look at it later on and go irrational and maybe, maybe they were, but that tells you where emotionally I was is that even surrounded by an environment that I think most people would objectively label very safe, very transgender supportive. I was scared out of my mind. And, and, and I think it just speaks to how difficult this is. It's like, you know, when people, you know, it's like, uh, in, in schools, people, um, some teachers put like a pink triangle on their door that lets students know that this is a safe space. And I've heard teachers push back on that and say, I don't need one of those. All the kids know. All the kids know they can tell me anything they want. And I'm like, yeah, okay. That's an arrogance that I know you think it sounds good. But as one of those people that needed to see that pink triangle, it's not true. And, um, and, and so that's one of the reasons I, I've, you know, I, I try to spend so much time working with students and high school students and schools as I do, because I just think even in an environment which is ostensibly safe, when you are trying to decide how you're going to navigate this, you don't see the safety. You just see the possible problems, and it's terrifying. It really is. And it was for me. And again, I can look back on that four years later and say, wow, I didn't have anything to worry about. But I, I can still, if I kind of, you know, sit here and think and concentrate, I, I can dredge up the fear again. I absolutely can. It is still real. It is still tangible. It is still palpable. I don't go there much. I don't need to. I don't want to. But, but sometimes I do. And, uh, and I don't like it. No, I can certainly relate to that. I mean, that fear is there. I tell people often that in many ways, it's a revolutionary act being trans in this society and walking out the door. Even yeah. in, even in societies that are very, even in societies that are a lot more open, like the society I live now. And I really relate to what you said to two things that you, that you've said here. One, when you're just talking about when you're telling people, this is the, I mean, when, when you have people who say things like, Oh, you're just doing this to get attention. When I came out to my family, they said at first the same thing. They said at first the same thing. Oh, you're just not happy with your life and you're just seeking attention. It's like, yeah, I'm really, yeah, I'm jabbing myself in the leg with a needle once a week. I really want that for attention. Yeah. There was something I told my family coming out and I recently had to tell them again. I said, listen, I'm not going to apologize for saving my own life because that's yeah. what it comes down to. And Bethany, I've got to give you some kudos on, on something really important here because full disclosure, I will admit to one of the people who 
who oftentimes at at points will will hear the name Caitlyn Jenner and cringe. I will fully admit, I will fully admit to at times, I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? But your article you wrote on HuffPost, I'm transgender, I believe in Caitlyn Jenner. I agreed with every word you wrote. I agreed with, I agreed with every word of it. Because at the same, and in a lot of ways, it cycles back to my feelings on Caitlyn as a whole, which on one hand, there are times she, she makes you facepalm, but I remember that. Let's go back. Let's set the way back machine, Sherman, five years ago to that first interview she did with Diane Sawyer. Yeah. And, and at the time, I was still very much an egg. But I, I knew kind of you're peeling back the layers of the onion and you kind of know where it's going, but you're, but you're still afraid to go there yet. But I went through a box of Kleenex watching that interview because all, all I could think of was here is this Olympic champion who I met at a track camp when I was 12 years old, mind you. And this person is telling, this person is telling a story that mimics a lot of my life. And for me, that was, it was very overwhelming and it was very, and it brought a lot of emotion, but also at that moment, I felt the world, I felt at that one moment, all of a sudden, the bulk of a country that didn't know anybody who was trans before and now know somebody who is trans. I think we, we could be turning the corner and we could just be at a beginning. And yeah. in a lot of ways, like her, her, hate her, or whatever, this, ever, in some way, she opened a door. And, and on one hand, so that makes me, as much as she makes me cringe, makes me very protective of her at the same time. And I, and I really like what you said and say that she doesn't owe any explanation. And the dichotomies, it, those are fair points to make. I mean, if she, if she doesn't say anything, she says she's not doing enough. If she doesn't say anything, if she if she does say something, she's a media whore. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, and I I like what you said here. She's allowed to navigate her transgender life in any way she pleases. Sure as hell, no one gets to tell me how to do it, and I'll grant her no less. Well said. Well said, because in a sense, Thanks. that's what we all want. No, so I just want to let you know. I agree with that. Now on on keeping friends who on keeping friends who may have voted for Trump, I, we may have to part company on that one. But on <laughs> Caitlin, it was spot on. Yeah, I, you know, it. I, I politics to me in this day and age have become confounding in the fact that I think I don't know. I mean, I've got friends in my life that voted for Trump and some I'm not friends with anymore, not the way I was, because they, I don't know, they can't, I keep giving them opportunities to sort of explain things to me, and I know they can't. And I've got other friends of mine that, that have, and I don't, I don't like the explanation, but I'm content they, they come by it politically not racially not i don't know it, it's something i'm still working out um you know um but let's put it this way if, if i if i dumped all the friends from my i mean some of, some of the most supportive people of my transition the people whose shoulders i cry on walk into that voting booth well here in oregon you go to the mailbox we don't have a voting booth um but they go to that mailbox and they vote Republican. And I, I, the, the disconnect there is, is very strange to me, but I just know when I've had some really dark times and we all know what that means when you're transgender. I mean, when I've been suicidal, there are some of the ones that have pulled me back from the brink. I don't, I don't get it. Um, and yet there we are. I wonder just on a follow-up for just, taking all the politics and all the other things and all the societal issues aside for, for the people that are in your circle, what has been the hardest thing you've seen 
as far as them trying to understand where you're at, what you're doing, and what your transition's about? What's been the hardest well, thing, you think? Well, that's the thing, is the, the friends in my life that I would consider Republicans, and I, and I, don't, I, I don't have any friends that are Trump lovers. I have friends that are Republicans that voted for Trump because that was the choice they were given. But what I think is the hardest thing for them to understand is they look at my journey and they understand how difficult it's been. And they know the things that I have been through. But where I think there's that disconnect is the same disconnect that so many people make is you'll hear people say things that are racist and then you point out, it's like, okay, but do you realize you're making a statement about, you know, someone you know? You're making a racist statement about a group of people, and do you realize that some of the people that you hang out with are a member of that group? And their defense mechanism is, well, you know, I'm not talking about so-and-so. I, I, think, I think that's the same thing. It's like they know what I have gone through, but they don't see that as a societal thing. They don't see it as something that is systematic. I think a lot of people do this is, you know, you'll, they'll, they'll have, they will have empathy for you because they know what has happened to you. And they're like, that is a tragedy. That is really sad. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I can't believe that happens to you. And yet when you try to get them to make that cognitive leap to empathy for a community, they can't do it because what you're trying to get them to accept is that I, the person you know, the person that you are connected with, I, I am no different than the rest of my community. And, and the things that I face are not unique to me. They are not because of my unique circumstance. They are structural. They are part of the way this country is built. They are part of whatever it is, cis normity, normativity, um, white normativity, um, heteronormativity. And, and, and what you're asking them now is to examine their role in being complicit in a structure that oppresses, that discriminates. And they don't want to do that. Because they can look in the mirror and say they have never done anything to you that would harm you, and they never would, and, and they wouldn't. But when you ask them to look at things from 30,000 feet and say, okay, but do you see how you're part of a system that is doing that to lots and lots of people like me, they're not capable of making that leap because they don't see it as structural. They don't see it as systematic. They see it as individuals that are being crappy to me. And I'm not disputing that, that there's that. And so it, it just becomes so easy to say, well, you know, you're not like the rest of them. Or, well, your circumstances are different than the rest of them. Yes, my individual circumstances are different. But the overall structure that enables what's happening to me that is not, I am not different. And, and you are in that way complicit with that overall body. And it's getting people to make that leap that other people like me are suffering like me. And it is not because of something they did. It is not because of something they are or they, whatever it is, you know, it's not that, you know, to go back to the trope. Oh, well, you're not like that. Yes, I am. I am exactly like that. And you, and if you're going to help me, you need to help them. And that is just not a leap that most people are capable of making. And so, you know, I guess in terms of my own day-to-day -day interactions, I've had to ask myself, okay, the fact that they're not capable of making that leap, does that mean I can't be friends with them? And I've decided that I can be friends with them because you know, again, on a lot of days, I'm not representing a group. I'm not part of a societal discourse on me, and I'm having a very difficult day, and I'm sad, and I'm depressed, and I'm suicidal, and I need a shoulder to cry on, and they're always there. And so in the end, that means more to me than their inability to make a leap to societal empathy.
and I don't know. Maybe I'm part of the problem, but that's kind of the, the disposition I've reached with it. I see you as part of the solution, Bethany. Um, you and I have not always seen eye to eye, and that's uh, no. That's why I love, love about each other. We 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 complement each other, I think, rather than contradict. Oh come on! I only I don't see eye to eye with Dawn either. You're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that most people on the planet can say that. I'd like to get um, as we wrap up because we're running out of time, and I know you have to get going. Um, what's your stance on transgender inclusion in sports? You know, and I'm going to sound I'm going to say something that sounds like a political answer. Um, when it comes to professional and collegiate sports, where let's be honest, even at the collegiate level and the Olympic level, this is a business now. I I, I see research, and and as and as a researcher, I'm always looking at research that I, I still don't know enough. And, and I guess as a researcher, one of the things you learn is where you are an expert, you say you're an expert, and the things where you're not, you shut up. What I will say is this, is I know a lot of the current political debate and where people are trying to stir up problems is in high school sports. You know, so-and-so lost the state track championship to a transgender athlete. And here's what I know as a high school educator. The purpose of high school sports was never to determine who was the fastest, who was the strongest, who was the best. The purpose of high school sports um, was never to decide who got a track scholarship. The purpose of sports was to give another means of developing the individual, of helping them reach their full potential. And, And I've seen kids that are active in sports. I have seen it nurture them as they develop academically. And so if, if somebody is telling me what is more important, the life and the identity of the transgender athlete or the right of some kid to get first place as opposed to second place, to me, that's a no-brainer. And this argument that, well, they're going to lose college scholarships. If you can show me one high school athlete that has lost out on a track scholarship because they got second to a transgender athlete, then we can have a discussion. It's a red herring. It's fake. Never happened. Never happened. And no, and it won't. And so to me, this is a false argument. Yes, I feel badly that somebody that should have gotten first got second. But you know what? That happens all the time. I mean, Michael Phelps, the guy is just biologically abnormal. His arms are longer. Okay. So there's differences of all kinds in human beings. This is one of them. Sometimes that difference means they are physically superior to you. And again, I don't know if the science backs that up, but the idea that somehow you're right to get a medal around your neck and stand one step higher on the podium supersedes a transgender kid's life to assert their identity and and possibly not end up suicidal and having their life wrecked. I'm sorry. I have no sympathy for that whatsoever. I just don't. I'm happy to discuss it. I understand why people are upset about it, but that's what this comes down to in high school sports. It's a red herring. It's a false flag. It's crap. And we have to discuss it, but we don't need to engage with people who are going to slur or uh, misgender us or whatever else. And I, I do well, my thing is quit picking on kids. More research is needed. And Carly always brings up, these are kids. Let's not, let's not, you know, torment kids. They, they should be given dreams and hopes, not crashes, uh, not not a tax well yeah i just see it like this like because again i'm going to bring this up and and bethany maybe you've read this the adf complaint against the two transgender athlete high school athletes in connecticut 29 pages of misgendering kids now i don't know about i don't care how anyone feels about this about this issue you can feel any way you want but if you're a parent and if someone mistreated your child, wouldn't you want to punch someone out? Wouldn't you yeah. want to get in their face and say, why are you coming at my kid like that? Why are you disrespecting my kid? To yeah. me, that's what it's about. So no, no, I'm with, I'm with you on what you're saying here. Is that, no, this is, that, you just don't, like, it goes back to what Caitlin said when she got her SB. You know what? I'm grown. I can take it. But kids shouldn't have to. Exactly. And on that, we're going to wrap up 
Let's reset the coordinates to make sure that we send Bethany back to Eugene, not yep, to back, Portland. <laughs> back to, back to Track City. Go Ducks. All right. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. She's great, isn't she? I'm so glad that we had is an, to talk to That her. is an excellent. I can't wait to I can't wait for the book on her on her research to come out. I hope it I hope she does publish it. I'd be very interested in seeing what in seeing what came from all those interviews. I'm interested to find out where Caitlyn Jenner stands on that whole trans inclusion debate. I've been trying to get her to talk to us again, but you know, so far not yet. Caitlin, the invitation's open. Hey, Caitlin, come on the show. Hailing frequencies open, Caitlin. Come on, Caitlin, please. Come on, come on the show. Come on the we're, show from, nice from somebody who idolized you as a kid. Come on the show. Well, we'll see. We'll we'll keep we'll keep a tell you what, we'll we'll stay in orbit and we'll just see if we can get her to beam of up. Of course. These days. Study as so she goes. Before we go, we should just uh break some news here. I've learned something about Star Trek Picard. Okay. I'm all ears. You've seen I mean Spock's ears. <laughs> Pointed ears. You've seen the trailer with Data. Right. Actor Brent Spiner told a gathering in England, Destination Star Trek, that how we see him in the trailer is not how we're going to see him on the show. They're going to de-age him and make him look like he did when he was on Star Trek The Next Generation. Really? I think that's interesting. That's going to give it a very different dynamic. Especially well, since, obviously, Picard has aged. Riker's yeah. aged. Deanna Troy has aged. And they and revealed from, that the, the Picard is actually in his 90s in the show. All right, so Picard's middle-aged. <laughs> so in this case, Picard's middle-aged. Picard's, come on, remember, it's, it's, the year 20, it's the year 23 whatever. Almost, 20, almost the 24th. Uh, yeah, uh, 25th century there, and on the cusp yeah, yeah, century. we're. I mean, we're. I mean, I mean, he's going to run into Buck Rogers at this point. He's got. I mean, he's <laughs> mid, ninety is middle aged. Beady, 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 You know what? I could use a good Romulan ale right now. Uh, it's a little early in the day for me, my friend. <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere in the universe on some planet. Yep. Well, <laughs> that's the transporter room episode five. Thank you very much, Carly. Thank you, Doctor Bethany Grace Howe. And we'll see you, you next week. We're going to have Monica Roberts of Transgrio. Are you ready to hear trans women talking some football? Football, the transgender child. There's so much to talk about. Our dear friend, our dear departed friend, Nikki, will talk about her. And Monica Roberts joins us next episode of the Transporter Room. Make sure you check out all the Outsports podcasts available wherever you get your podcast. Oh, yes. Check them out because they're all excellent. Outsports has done some great work here. I'm Dawn Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. Mr. Sulu, standard order, please.